to Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, Episode 66. We are lawyers talking about privacy. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the Triple Entente Beer Summit Edition. I'm, I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 7th, 2015. So we're going to see if we are better with a little beer in us uh, and with a great audience in front of us. Uh, so uh, um, I'm here to retire the story of the week uh, from uh, the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast uh, and go back to at least for a week uh, this week in NSA because uh, uh, the Second Circuit has uh, uh, announced uh, – a, a decision that will reverberate for about three and a half weeks. Uh, <laughs> so, um, Michael, you want to uh, fill us in on what the decision had to say? Yeah, I think basically the decision tracked the analysis of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, um, and it said that uh, it didn't need to address the constitutional issues because it was clear that the program uh, the metadata program is not authorized by the statute, that the, the administration's interpretation of the statute is just unreasonable, that this is collecting all of the metadata of everybody's phone calls is not uh, reasonably related to an investigation. And so I think what's interesting is that the, the decision now puts the, the uh, heat under Congress to change the law, that Senator McConnell's uh, preferred strategy of just having a short-term clean reauthorization of 215 is not going to fly because the court just said, uh-uh, 215 doesn't actually I, I, authorize you know, this program. I'm not, I'm not sure that's right. If, if, if they have a debate, I mean, the, the problem that the court said with this uh, uh, reauthorization as a, uh, a ratification of what the uh, program was, was that there hadn't been public awareness and a fully informed Congress about the program. If they reauthorize it knowing everything they know now, I'm not sure that uh, you don't have to start all over with the analysis of whether they've ratified it, uh, and, and that'll last longer than any six-month extension. That is a very typical Bakerian creative <laughs> legal analysis that I love. It's, you know, it's, I think you're right. That's a, that's a very good argument that if, if they reauthorize it now, it completely changes the, uh, the history of it. But the fact remains that the plain language, I think, is still would have to be read so creatively that the court's just not going to buy that this, this language authorizes this program. Can I, can I, can I yep. just throw in here that the big winner in this is NSA. Um, you get your program struck down three weeks before it's going to expire when Congress is completely paralyzed and can't do anything about it. And this is exactly the spark uh, that they needed in order to get legislative movement uh, that was otherwise unforthcoming. And I think this is, uh, there's nothing, nothing as good in victory as a good, well-timed defeat. And that they're going to be the big winners here. I think I'd also like to point out that I think people who brought this case would consider themselves to be big winners as well. I mean, if you actually read what the Second Circuit wrote, I mean, it is a pretty damning indictment. This is Shane Harris, by the way, since you can't actually see me. All you guys out in the audience can see me. But it's a pretty damning indictment. I mean, it calls the government's interpretation overly broad. It actually starts quoting words from the Oxford English Dictionary to correct the government on what the meaning of the word investigation is. It completely doesn't buy the idea that relevance 
uh, allows you to collect every single phone record now in existence or in the future because it one day might be relevant to an investigation. I mean, you go on the ACLU's, ACLU's website today, and what was there in the very center of the page was a big label that said victory. And so I think, you know, both sides are celebrating that. Yeah. Right, and, and yet... Uh, so this is Ben Wittes. I just want to point out, by the way, that Shane has brought whiskey to a beer summit. That's right. Um, and <laughs> I'm not sure what to make of that. But um, After three of them, I can tell you what to make of that. <laughs> <laughs> so look, you know, you have, um, yes, this is a devastating defeat um, and a great victory for the ACLU, and it's going to last three weeks. And in that time, um, you're going to see that um, for, and it is also, by the way, a, a clear defeat for the McConnells of the world because it, it shows as well that the sort of what he calls a clean authorization is not going to reliably stand up in court. And so it forces the whole political process towards something like the USA Freedom Act or some form of clear authorization for something very similar to but not exactly like this program and to get it done really fast. So I, I, I think that's right. And the House is actually, I have to say, I've been impressed by the House's ability just to march through this stuff, especially compared to the Senate, which has uh, sort of rolled it all into a ball and stuck it under the bed. Uh, I, I, the real question is, can the Senate get itself together to come up with an alternative to USA freedom? Uh, well, this will concentrate the mind. Uh, can I shift gears just a little bit and, and, and bring up a pet peeve about this opinion? So this, uh, Wells Bennett made this point earlier today. I don't, I can't see him now, but, um, you know, this opinion starts with a very ominous comparison of the current environment that we're in to the Keith case and the sort of COINTELPRO era and the resulting church commission. And, uh, Jerry Lynch, Judge Lynch, for whom I have generally very high regard, starts with these very dire uh, analogies and then declines to issue an injunction. And I think, you know, you have a choice in life. You can, you can, you're free to not compare things to COINTELPRO. And you're also free to, you know, issue, to, to not issue an injunction about a program you think crosses legal lines. But if you compare something to COINTELPRO, Issue the damn injunction. <laughs> but, but doesn't he sort of address this point, too, when he, he says, you know, within two weeks or three weeks, the Congress is going to address this very issue. So it seems like that would be, you know, that's, that's overkill, isn't it? I mean, and why? I mean, it, it would just be grandstanding to do that and to say, oh, let's issue the injunction well, be, now. But isn't it grandstanding to issue a 97-page opinion that's good for three weeks? Oh, I mean, one person's grandstanding. <laughs> sort of, I mean, it was a very well-written opinion, I thought. I, 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 yes, and they spent up. This is Stuart. This is, uh, it seemed to me, um, I, I wondered whether they rushed it. It didn't look rushed, uh, uh, but uh, it is peculiar to issue it this late. They could have just sat and waited to see what would happen and whether their case was mooted, but I think they really wanted to weigh in on this. I'm well, just going to quote from the grandstanding here for a second, because I actually wrote about this today for the Daily Beast. Um, uh, where he, the, the, quote, this case serves as an example of the increasing complexity of balancing the paramount interest in protecting the security of our nation with the privacy interests of its citizens in a world where surveillance capabilities are vast and where it is difficult, if not impossible, to avoid exposing a wealth of information about oneself 
to those surveillance mechanisms. That is all true. And that is the moment that we're in. And, I, you know, it, whether they issue the injunction or not, that stands to me as a fairly concise and clear explanation of the very dilemma that we've been living with since long before Snowden's leaks began. You know, I, I, I take your point, Ben. I, and I, I had the same reaction when I started reading that comparison to the 70s and the Church Commission. I thought, oh, boy, here we go, another opinion that's starting off with this big dramatic introduction. It's going to be horribly reasoned, as they usually are when they start off that way. And it wasn't. You know, I, was, I was pleasantly surprised that then it went into a very rational and, and uh, well-laid-out legal analysis. Um, and I think, you know, in some respects we can say this is a good example of judicial restraint. It went through the legal analysis and it said we're going to restrain ourselves from issuing an injunction because we're going to let the democratic process play out. It's just three and a half weeks. Let it happen. What's interesting to me is to think about what about the D.C. Circuit? we still got the Clayman case. Are they going to now try to chime in? Um, perhaps with a contrary decision, or are they just going to wait now and say, okay, we got beaten to the finish line? This, to me, it raises a fascinating question, because listening to this discussion about grandstanding, it strikes me that... Um, from a grandstand. Part, from, from a grandstand, and this is Tamara... Uh, that, uh, You're the one person who doesn't have to introduce herself. <laughs> My voice is a little different. Um, it, it strikes me that the grandstanding here is driven um, not by a desire to, to uh, put forward a very strong and perhaps poorly reasoned argument, but a desire by the court to frame the terms of the upcoming legislative debate. And, you know, this goes back to a dilemma um, that the courts have been dealing with ever since 9-11 and in some ways before, which is that when the legislature doesn't do its job or doesn't do it well, um, the court has to step forward on issues that really do need to be aired in, in a broad public debate. Um, so it's interesting to me that the court, compelled to act, um, perhaps in this case, decided that it wanted to make a statement about how we should debate this and what we should be debating. So it's judicial activism masquerading as judicial restraint. Exactly. So I I actually, though, I I really, this is Ben again, I I really agree with Michael that the opinion itself is very workmanlike and serious, and it homes in on exactly the right question, which has been among you know, among serious people from day one of this story, when The Guardian first published the order, the central question that people have focused it on, focused on, which is how capacious is the word relevant? And is, does the word relevant as the government uses it to justify this program swallow the entire universe of possible data? Or is it in some sense constrained? And if the, if, if the former, is that what Congress intended when it passed 215? And I think Judge Lynch actually does quite a good job of much better than Judge Leon did in the, in well, the he district He left court. out the exclamation point sheet. <laughs> right. And, and, and sort of much less grandstanding than you know, other judicial opinions and a lot of uh, academic literature have done in terms of his, his analysis of that question. Uh, I think the opinion itself is 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 admirable, and um, whether one thinks it's right or wrong. But what is, I, I do think, not everything that is illegal is COINTELPRO. We should probably note here too that in the opinion they do address the question of what was Congress's intent, and they sort of take the government's arguments point by point, and one of them has been, well, if Congress didn't explicitly intend for Section 215 to be read this way, they implicitly 
meant it to be read this way when they reauthorized the statute. And, you know, the sort of subtext to the judge's opinion of that is, really? Really? I mean, it, it, it really, I mean... But, you it, know, but they're, they're, it, they're actually making up law there. The, the, I, I'm quite confident that if you go back and look at the Supreme Court decisions like Laurel Art against Pons and, and the others that say, oh, Congress is presumed to have known what was done uh, under this statute and what the interpretations were when they reauthorize it, I guarantee you that there were not four members of the House of Representatives or the Senate that understood that uh, uh, the Fair Labor Standards Act guaranteed jury trials or whatever the, the standard well, And the was. court seems to be saying here, too, that they doubt that there were four members of Congress who knew that 215 meant we're collecting everyone's phone records. Right, I, I, although actually there was more effort here. Clearly, the yeah. Intelligence Committees did know, and, yes. and, and a system had been set up in which they were expected to act for the House uh, because the whole house couldn't be cleared. Uh, uh, so I thought that was actually one of the less persuasive parts of the uh, uh, the uh, uh, opinion, the other being the suggestion, which was sort of uh, inevitable, uh, that, of course, the Second Circuit gets to opine on this because Congress, even though they created this very special uh, uh, unitary review system, couldn't possibly have meant to exclude the brilliant lights on the Second Circuit from having their opportunity to opine on it. Uh, that was that was a, a, a less than persuasive. Uh, you just said that because you were a government lawyer. Uh, uh, that's true. That's true. Stuart, I, and I, I clerked on the First Circuit. So it's yes. time for you to recognize that we from New York get to opine on everything, and we're always right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, so let, how about this week in CIA? Uh, uh, the, uh, uh, Mike Morell has come out with a uh, a book which actually we we can't yet quite read right we're just getting we're, we're getting bits of it you read it, read it. Yeah. yes I have it at okay. home so blocks from can here you, can you do a staged reading for us oh I should have brought it <laughs> yeah so the, what what is the 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 big news in that. Well, the big news that, that there's a couple of pieces of big news in it, but the one that I actually wrote about uh, uh, yesterday and it was up today for the Beast is uh, there's a chapter where Mike Morell addresses the issue of the Snowden leaks and what was the operational damage to intelligence gathering from that and makes the very controversial and I, I personally think um, overly expansive and hard to substantiate claim that... Uh, the Snowden leaks were responsible for, in his words, aided, quote, the rise of ISIS. Uh, and, and the argument here essentially is that because terrorists learn things about U.S. intelligence operations from the disclosures, which I think is undoubtedly true, as we all learn things about U.S. intelligence operations from the disclosures, that this somehow contributed to the rise of ISIS as a force that, you know, grew out of al-Qaeda in Iraq and now has become this sort of regional conquest force uh, simply because he revealed things like, oh, wow, we're monitoring people's phone calls and emails. I mean, not to be flip about this, but I mean, and I, I, you know, look, I mean, Morell was on the inside when this book came out. Um, he certainly had firsthand uh, uh, exposure to what the operational damage would have been. Hence, very interestingly, that the, he might, that Snowden may have actually stolen information from the CIA, but then he says, well, I can't tell you about that because I've been briefed not to. Um, but makes this really bold claim that you, you can link the rise of ISIS to the Snowden leaks. Uh, and I think that's something that's not uh, at all a consensus within the intelligence community and was um, one of the more eye-popping parts of, the, of uh, what is, I think, you know, overall a pretty good book. You know, I, I, it isn't that hard. To, to actually see it happen. If you see it happen, if you see people, if you're exploiting people's uh, um, communications, 
Uh, and then a, there's a story that says, oh, by the way, uh, it would be really stupid to, to keep rewriting drafts in your Gmail folder uh, because the government can read those. And then they stop. I, you know, it's pretty obvious that they learned something from the stories and denied you intelligence as a result. Sure, but that, but yeah. that, that, that assumes that the reason that the intelligence community completely missed the rise of ISIS was because all of a sudden, when Snowden's leaks came out, they stopped using Yahoo or they stopped using Gmail or whatever else uh, he alleges. It's, it seems to me this really smacks of uh, an excuse for why the intelligence community missed the rise of ISIS. Oh, because of Snowden, not because of any incompetence on our part. It's because of Snowden. Right. It's it's a great way to deflect blame, and I think it, it it deflects blame perhaps from the analysts, but it also deflects blame from the larger policy environment. Um, ISIS didn't grow in a vacuum, and you know, and and we know what its antecedents were. We know that those those antecedents were never really defeated. Uh, even when the Iraqi civil war um, started to fade and U.S. troops began to withdraw. And so, you know, it's a great way of avoiding questions about things like troop withdrawal, about the reticence of the United States to get engaged in the Syrian civil conflict at an earlier phase, and the broader environment of disorder in the Middle East. I mean, where did ISIS come from? That's where ISIS came from. But, Shane, help, help me out here. I'm trying to figure out, is Morell arguing that the Snowden leaks contributed to the rise of ISIL, or is he arguing that the Snowden leaks contributed to our lack of insight into the rise of ISIL? Those seem to me to be very different propositions, the former of which strikes me as very hard to even think about justifying, and the latter of which is is a little bit more colorable. So he's, he is using the words the rise of ISIS in the first case, which I think, and I agree with you, it's hard to, 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 to back that up. But he does then does talk more broadly about intelligence gathering against terrorists, terrorists writ large and insights into <clears throat> terrorist attacks and the problem, and then kind of backs away from the ISIS part. I mean, I actually wondered if maybe his editor sort of forced him to put the ISIS bit in there to kind of... Create a headline. Yeah, create a headline, which it worked. Go figure. Um, but um, we just I'm that, sold I'm that easy. 100 books. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, he you're got all, you you're, to you're write a story Mike. about it, Shane. But, yeah, right. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, he does, but then he does sort of make this broader kind of categorical kind of claim that Look, the fact that these, this information is out there did lead to us losing insight into terrorists we were tracking, operations we were tracking. And, and I've talked to people in, you know, in recent weeks who make that claim as well, who say, look, there are specific instances, and they won't say what they are, of course, but where we did watch uh, channels of information dry up after the leaks happen. It seems to me that's a much more, even though it's like it's anonymous in who they're saying dried up, it's a much more specific claim that's much easier to substantiate than saying rise of ISIS equals Snowden. I, I think it's worth remembering who's making this claim and where he comes from. He's a CIA guy. He's got no, you know... Usually, the response to leaks and, and intelligence disasters at NSA at the CIA is Schadenfreude. Uh, <laughs> and uh, uh, in this case, if he says uh, the damage that was done through leaks of NSA information hurt our intelligence overall, uh, I think it's more plausible than if NSA said. Right, but but again, saying it hurt our intelligence overall 
is different from saying yeah. it meaningfully it's, contributed to the rise of right. ISIS, right? right? One, one is a question of how much we know, and the other is a question of, of substantively what happened. Right, and I just, even, I just find it really hard know. to believe that, that, that ISIS, ISIS's rise and Snowden's leaks have much to do with each other at all. I, I think our window into, into it might have something to do the, with it. The logical connection would be that if we had had that visibility, we would have been more effective in combating them, or we would have been more aware right. of the threat they presented in an earlier phase. Well, come on, he's and an intelligence guy. Of course he thinks that, right? Uh, right, but that, that presumes that there was focus on the issue, and it presumes that there was a will to do something about and it. And, our, and Right, and that we, we weren't facing resource trade-offs. Okay, okay so, so let, let me throw out a question to everybody. This is, this is Ben again. Morell is a really, really smart guy. And at least in my interactions with him, I've never known him to be a bomb thrower. He's a very serious, analytical mind, very strong opinions about things, but I've certainly never known him to be a, uh, yeah, he's you very know, careful. let's, let's see what we can blow up intellectually today. He, he was um, on the president's review, review group yeah, on 215 and right. thought it needed to be reformed. So, if, if we, if we take that, that in this group of five, uh, this suggestion on his part has one half supporter in Stewart and and sort of no no other takers. What what do we attribute this? Uh, what what do we what's going on there with him? So I, ha- having read the chapter a number of times, I mean, one thing that's that's very interesting to me is that <clears throat> you get this sense of him. I don't want to say being coy. Well, maybe he's being a bit coy of saying. There are certain things that I know that I can't tell you, but I'm going to write these down in the form of a question. And so one of them, for instance, is one of the first things I wondered was, did Edward Snowden steal anything from the CIA when he worked there? And I can't talk about that because I've been told not to talk about that by the people who briefed me, which is sort of saying, of course you think he stole something. So, you know, it, there's a part of the story you can't tell us. And, you know, maybe if we're, you know, and I agree with you in your assessment of, of, of Mike, too, and I don't think he's a bomb thrower, I would suppose there might be something else that he believes substantiates the ISIS claim that he simply could not put in that book and that he wants to throw this out there to maybe make people believe that there's something more to it. That's the charitable explanation. I mean, and the overly broad one uh, is, is the less charitable one is that he's just being overly broad in the generalization of ISIS and al-Qaeda and they're all terrorists and they all read newspapers and therefore they're learning things from us. So what does he have to say about... Benghazi and the talking points, which I certainly were not his greatest hour. Uh, uh, does he does he say he he did it exactly right and uh, that the Tea Party's nuts? Uh, well, he he says pretty clearly, and you know Shane's got the text. I don't. I'm just reading the dribs that that make their way into the news before the book. I didn't write about that chapter. Release. So boring. <laughs> so boring. Um, But his argument, as I understand it, is that uh, there was no grand conspiracy, that, yes, the White House edited the CIA's talking points, but um, that the the basic claim of the administration, that in early days uh, they had one understanding of what happened and that evolved over time, that that's accurate and that the Republican claims are distortive. Um, the, The other interesting 
argument that's come out in the in the news reporting about this book is, you know, he's saying that the CIA was wrong to predict that the Arab Spring would tamp down threats from Al Qaeda. Um, that, you know, they expected that the the people power revolutions would cut against the narrative of this movement, and uh, and that turned out not to be the case. Um, whether it in fact turned out not to be the case or, or whether there were other developments in the wake of the Arab Spring that helped to drive Islamist extremism, we can have a debate about. But I thought it was an interesting point to pick up on. I mean, obviously he had to make a lot of choices about what issues he was going to tackle in this book and also, you know, what, uh, what they were going to roll out as they were rolling the book out. And it raises the broader question about what's the relationship between democracy and terrorism. Or do we even have good theories of the case about what helps reduce um, the demand for terrorism, what helps reduce radicalization, what helps reduce the appeal of extremism? Certainly for the Bush administration, there was a theory uh, that democratization in the Arab world would reduce threats from radicalization, um, reduce the grievances. You know, there's also the idea that if you have peaceful or, you know, more moderate political Islamists in the system, that the radicals outside the system get marginalized. Um, but what I think is interesting is that despite, you know, more than a decade of trying to churn through these theories uh, and the CIA clearly struggling with making these judgments, we don't actually have any good analytical conclusions on this. Actually, we don't have yeah. good data on it. I, my, 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 I can't help observing that that was a very politically convenient conclusion for yes. them to reach because that's the conclusion that the White House had already reached. Uh, I, and so, you know, you, whether that was politicization or whether the CIA is living up to my view of them, which is sort of uh, uh, the State Department with guns, <laughs> I, they, they, uh, they, they came to a, a sort of dewy-eyed uh, and convenient conclusion. Okay, or maybe a hopeful, too, too hopeful. Yeah, too hopeful. That, that's another possibility, or too naive. Um, Speaking I mean, of naive, I, 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 I do have to ask. Uh, we, we, we want to do a feature uh, this week in French hypocrisy. Uh, <laughs> Target-rich <laughs> environment. <laughs> exactly. Uh, no, we will not run out of uh, opportunities for stories. Uh, and, uh, Ben, you wrote about uh, French and German, and German. Uh, hypocrisy. That uh, uh, sort of you know, it goes together. Um, ben it, is not going to get any Mirage jets this year. Oh, or, or at least they won't stay long. <laughs> well, so I, I, I mean, as you all know, uh, the French uh, lower house of parliament this week passed a surveillance bill that makes the combined authorities of the Patriot Act um, and the FISA Amendments Act look like uh, something that Jamil Jaffer dreamt up in um, and sort of forced yeah, down the right. throats of the intelligence community. The good one. Um, and, um, uh, you know, and so I was thinking, as, as was a lot of the rest of the world, I suppose, how is it that the French uh, sim- and the Europeans simultaneously get so angry at the United States for its intelligence practices while outflanking us not a little bit, but, you know, by a sort of country mile. Um, and so this happened the same time. The New, the New York Times literally covered them in stories the same day, where the Germans have discovered um, that 
it, spying on friendly powers is actually uh, sometimes a useful thing to do. And um, sometimes what you do when you do that is you share that information with friendly intelligence services. And Angela Merkel was asked to justify this. And she said uh, in this New York Times story that, um, you know, working with our allies is very important. And sometimes that means giving information to NSA. And she said it without a, a apparent trace of irony. And I, I thought, well, I think these two stories, when you put them together, stand for the basic proposition that European government, European, the fundamental European demand is not that we don't have mass surveillance. It's not that we have judicial review and surveillance. It's not that we don't spy on our friends. It's that Americans aren't allowed to do those things and that there really isn't a more generous way to read that. So I'm going to just throw that out there and and that's my This Week in European Hypocrisy. I, you know, this is Michael. I, I can't disagree with you at all. I will say in the defense of the French but that they were probably... Doug, our sound technician, this is for you. Whenever I speak, there's a siren in the background. <laughs> and we are in a firehouse. <laughs> but in defense of, in very slight defense of the French, they were probably the least outspoken in the criticism of the U.S. Uh, when yeah. the Snowden leaks came except out. Except the British. Because they knew so, so well that they were doing what we did and far, far more. Yeah, they, they, it is true. They they dummied up after a, about uh, three weeks of not having their message together. They just shut up about yeah. the mm -hmm. issue. Uh, Unlike but, the Germans. Right. right. Now, the, the, the Germans doubled down. Well, I mean, it suggests that all of these objections are not about the substance of the issues or about any principle. It's really just about the Lilliputians trying to tie down Gulliver. Yeah. Well, and, and also, it, 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 it should be seen in the context of a larger European approach to outsourcing their security to the United States, which is not only do you get all the benefits of the U.S. security umbrella, you also get to whine about it <laughs> all the time. And that this is, a, this is a really delicious combination that the end of the Cold War has not you, you know, have, 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 you, have you never raised an adolescent girl? <laughs> that, yeah. that free rider problem. So I, I, all that makes sense, but I think it's not. It's not the, what, what's happening in France and Germany is not uh, exclusive to those countries. Uh, every country, well, not uh, the UK, um, the uh, Australians, the Canadians uh, have all looked at the terrorism problem since Snowden and decided they need more authority for surveillance, not less. Uh, we're the ones who are out of step with everybody else and pulling back on our surveillance authorities. Okay. Uh, we promised that we would uh, take questions from the audience for the second half of this, uh, and I'm getting the, uh, uh -oh. uh, uh, the neck chop. They're uh, from jumping the, out of right. their seats. Well, they're just going to the bathroom. <laughs> the exactly. Please so, don't hurt each other wrestling for that mic. I'll so, take another ride. Wait, wait, please. That's right. So uh, we have a mic in the front. Uh, we will um, uh, we will cut the 30 seconds during which we all uh, take a swig of our beer, and then you're welcome to ask questions. You don't actually have to identify yourself if you don't want to. If uh, your identity is protected. Yes, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so is that Julian Sanchez I see? You don't have to identify Sanchez. anyone. But yeah, yeah, that's right. Which one? He must have a question. <laughs> no, you had it for sure. <laughs> 
Hey, there we go. Uh, I guess I'll go first with Kane. Uh, um, I don't know why anyone in the intelligence community gets drink, like, talks to me after, after drinking, but, uh, but occasionally, uh, when one does, they'll say something along the following lines. Um, you know, it's not so much that, uh, our collection is hampered by classified details that have been disclosed, so much as it is that, um, you know, nominally public information like, you know, Section 702 exists and allows all this stuff, um, is something that people who don't work on this for a living don't pay that much attention to. And so when it's on the front page of the New York Times for three weeks, um, people kind of just become conscious of the need to, to, to have better sort of operational security and, uh, and communications. Um, and so it's just greater attentiveness more than the details of the disclosure um, that that caused this, which I find not not implausible, but then it's not so much that it's the Snowden links, it's the fact that the media has decided for one reason or another um, to have a, a public discussion of these things. And I was wondering whether, I guess, Shane, your impression from uh, Morell's book is that he's claiming that it's general awareness that NSA exists or and is doing stuff or you know, specific yeah. uh, operational details that were of, of aid to ISIS. It's, it's definitely more the latter. I mean, in that chapter, he's, he, he's talking about the disclosures occur, and then he even uses the phrase that within weeks, channels of information started to dry up. Mm-hmm. I'm paraphrasing here, but, you know, people we were following, essentially, we were no longer able to follow. And, you know, and I've talked to people in the intelligence community who make that argument as well. Um, but, you know, but... At the same time, I mean, I, I mean, I agree with you on a lot of this. I mean, one of the frustrations that I had when the 702 program, such as it is, was exposed was, I mean, looking at these slides and everything and thinking, well, everyone knew this already. We had a very public debate in 2007 and 2008 over something called the FISA Amendments Act, which explicitly authorized the government to go to companies like Facebook and Yahoo and Google, the obvious ones, and give them orders for large amounts of information. And it just struck me as, you know, kind of crazy that nobody figured out that, of course, they're going to Google and Yahoo and Facebook and saying, give us this information. It's explicitly authorized in the statute, and we had a very public debate about it. I mean, I guess one question, if if, if Morell were here, I guess I would say, like, look, what if I, as a, an enterprising journalist, just decided one day, you know what, there's that Section 702 of FISA. I'm going to go out and interview 50 people and see if I can figure out who the companies are that are getting orders <laughs> under this line, what they might be doing with it. Now, would I then be, you know, sort of contributing to the kind of the mosaic of information that's out there uh, and therefore tipping, you know, terrorists off? Um, you know, why does it take, you know, one person disclosing a PowerPoint slide to suddenly be like, you know, the leak that ended, you know, that, that ended the world? I just, I, I just don't buy that. So when are you having Mike Morell on the Steptoe podcast? We, we, we will invite him. That's a great idea. Uh, 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 Mike, uh, if you're listening, uh, you're already a fan, so uh, we'll bring you on. Yeah. <laughs> or he was. <laughs> so don't be shy. We're just going to edit out all the awkward pauses, yeah. so you know, please ask a question. Or respond. Or respond to, you know. Or get angry at Stuart. Stuart yeah, yeah. I, I, I want to say that Stuart has been, uh, for the last several weeks, 
uh, flacking this line that he's set up for people to send angry uh, responses. Yeah, and I get none. And he gets none. He gets no. love this letters. Is, Are you kidding me? You should see really what he gets. Wants Here we go. angry responses. So somebody come up and heckle him, please. Oh, this this is really unfair. Uh, okay. Who it is? Uh, I'm Mike. I work on the Hill, and I think I've told some of you privately. I rely upon a lot of your writing on the site, so thank you very much for what you do. I rely upon my work. Um, Two questions. Uh, One is a comment, but it'll get in the form of a question. Um, How much is the Hill, and I work on the Hill, um, how much is the Hill really going to be forced to deal with this Second Circuit opinion decision? A lot of us are probably going to say, wait a minute, we created this FISA court for nine years every 90 days. They've been telling us that this program is statutory authorized, who are these Second Circuit people to come in and say that it's not? I imagine there's some element that we're going to just be forced as a matter of function to deal with it, but how much do we really have to deal with it? The second one truly is a question. Um, how appropriate, and I use that word appropriate, do you think that the, the was the ratification element of the Second Circuit decision today? How appropriate was it for the court to really like peer behind the curtain? The executive branch said, you know, we informed Congress of this, and we did it the best the way that we could. What Congress does with that, you know, hey, there's not much we can do with that. And then the court made, obviously, some decisions, whether they really thought, oh, Congress was informed, but it really wasn't. They were making some value judgments there. Mm-hmm. How appropriate do you think that was? So on your first question, this is Ben Woods. I'll leave, I'll leave, I'll leave your second question to the people who've actually done, you know, some, some, some administrative law. Um, I I think that it will have a forcing function. And the reason is that until today, um, there was, you know, the, the, the member of Congress who prefers to do nothing individually or collectively, which is the overwhelming majority, um, could legitimately say, um, hey, the president kind of wants this program to end, um, you know, wants to do it differently. The um, civil libertarians want it to end. Um, and nobody's kind of pounding the table and saying, you know, this is, um, you know, we need to get this done or something really bad is going to happen, except some people at NSA who don't talk, right? And so... The, the difference now is that um, the you know the court has declared that a program that's been going on for you know seven years and in some other form for a lot longer than that is illegal and that Congress never voted for it and never never stood up for it um, and I think the the instinct on the part of both a lot of people in Congress and uh, for exactly the reason you raise in your second part of your question or in your second question is going to be to want to resist that a little bit and say, wait a minute, this was a program that in fact a lot of us did know about, that the executive branch did ask for, that we gave. Um, and there's you know, going to be, you know, it sets up the question of whether the final word on this subject should be uh, you know, the, 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 the second circuits or whether it should be Congress's. And I think that's something that Congress is much more likely to respond to, particularly on a ticking clock than, than the sort of fading into the sunset of the sunset provision. 
Yeah, I, I, I go ahead. No, no, no you go, you go. I, I, I think you could say we're going to care. This is Stuart. I, you could carefully um, address all the issues raised by the uh, uh, Second Circuit opinion in Congress by saying, okay, they said we didn't think about it. We're going to, okay, we thought about it. I and you're, you, you, you put an end to their uh, analysis. And certainly if you change the statute and make it clear that you know what you're authorizing, uh, and that seems to me to be inevitable as a result of the debates, uh, you've addressed it. Uh, I predict that the the libs and the left will say, oh, this shows the program's illegal, uh, and imply that it's unconstitutional and and the like. Uh, But if, if you actually address it's pretty easy to address it. Uh, I do agree with you that one of the weaknesses of this, the weakest part of the analysis, is where they say, oh, Congress might have imagined that this, all these decisions would go through the FISA court and up to the FISA court of review, uh, uh, and they never thought that we, the Second Circuit, would be addressing it, but <laughs> we found a way, uh, and they, they used remarkably unpersuasive distinctions uh, of Supreme Court uh, uh, jurisprudence to get there, uh, it does mean that that's probably something that Congress needs. If you don't want that to happen over and over again, uh, you probably have to make it clearer, uh, uh, quite explicit, that we really intend to have one decision maker, one set of rules. Uh, we have a court of patent appeals, a federal court of patent appeals, because we think it's really important to have one source of uh, authoritative patent law. I think probably national security is at least as important as patent law, and uh, having one uh, FISA court of review that will make those determinations before it goes to the court is something that's important. It may be tricky to do politically, but it's probably an important part of whatever comes out of the FISA, uh, uh, re- the 215 renewal process. Are the patent course decisions classified? Uh, no, they are not. Uh, <laughs> but they, n- neither, I predict, will be uh, uh, the FISA Court of Review. And the only one we have was only partially uh, classified right. itself. I don't know. I, I thought that part was pretty persuasive. I mean, the, the court basically said, yes, the Congress set up the FISA Court as the the venue for review of a challenge by a recipient of a 215 order, that is, the communication service provider. But it, but Congress didn't envision a challenge by someone whose information was was subject to this program, uh, someone whose, whose privacy was really at stake. And so there's a presumption that there is a right to judicial review by someone who has a claim, whether it's a statutory claim under the Administrative Procedures Act or or a constitutional claim. Well, I'll, I'll uh, cite I'll cite that notorious conservative uh, Jerry Nadler, uh, who said, uh, "Well, they don't they don't know, so they're not going to sue. They don't get to sue." <laughs> <laughs> he, he is my congressman, I think. Um, <laughs> but you know, but your second question was about the you know the, this this whole issue of whether um, uh, the presumption that Congress knows what it's reauthorizing uh, and, and how that applies in this case. You know, it, there is this fiction that when Congress reauthorizes a statute, it actually understands how the executive branch is implementing it, just like there's a fiction in criminal cases that everybody knows what the law is, and so you can't plead ignorance of the law. So I live in New York now. You can have a three-course meal on the subway. I've seen people do it. I, I've seen people floss brush their teeth with an electric toothbrush <laughs> on the subway. I am not kidding. 
You come to D.C., you have a banana, people get thrown in jail. I, I remember that from when I lived here. If I come from New York... Were you ever thrown in jail, Mike, um, for no, eating a banana? I don't have Not rats in banana. subway. <laughs> no, I haven't been thrown in jail. Not yet. Um, but there's a fiction that we're all obliged to know the law. So there's this fiction that Congress knows what it's doing when it reauthorizes a statute. In this case, I think the Second Circuit reasonably said, we can't really apply that fiction here because this program was so secretive there were so few people authorized to even see the details. Staff were not allowed. And the subtext of that, of course, is that if staff are not allowed to know something, then their members, members. can't be, <laughs> you know, uh, yes. uh, uh, assumed to have knowledge Careful, of something. Careful, you're talking to staff. That's a reasonable assumption, <laughs> that's right? A compliment. So, 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 so Mike, what you're saying is the big winner in this litigation was Jim Con- Sensenbrenner. <laughs> and congressional staff. Yes. <laughs> Don't exclude us if you want to assume that Congress knows anything. Yes. Come on up. So first, thanks very much for hosting this interesting. I'd like to just ask about um, the usefulness of some of these programs, particularly 215, but it could go broader to the, I know PCLOB's reviewing the Foreign Intelligence Executive Order. Um, From someone on the outside, it's hard to get a, a real feel for what is useful and what's not. And I read a lot and I try to understand it, but it's it's difficult. It seems that the intelligence community is has been um, much more willing recently, post-Snowden, than it ever had been before to reveal a lot of, to declassify a lot of stuff. And they're really struggling to show the usefulness of some of these programs. Um, and uh, as someone who supports uh, foreign intelligence operations, I would... I'm sort of striving for them to say, to give more detail, and it's sort of lacking um, to some degree. So I'm, I was just hoping you could comment about um, the usefulness, particularly the 215 program, but really any of them. And it seems that the government is willing to de- declassify where politically or otherwise necessary or useful. So a few, a few thoughts on this in no particular order. The first is that um, on the 215 program specifically, um, I don't, you know, there was an unfortunate tendency in the early days after the Snowden leaks to describe this as a critical program, an essential program. It's in fact, it's a very small program that re- involves a, a, a small number of queries per year, um, and the agency struggled to establish that it had sort of but-for causation in any uh, disrupted plot. Um, and probably because it didn't. Um, and it's a program that was designed to plug a particular gap, um, you know, the, the sort of Khalid al-Mazar, Midar gap from, from the 9-11 plot. It has done that successfully, but there aren't that many exploitations of that gap. So the actual functional impact of the program is probably not that great. Um, moreover, the broader answer to your question is that you know, when lawyers sit around and talk about the impact of a program, they are very interested, and this is really important in the criminal context or even in civil litigation, right, where you're, you're looking for the particular piece of evidence and the specific role it plays in establishing that the, you know, the elements of a criminal offense were in fact violated, right? And you're looking for evidence that very specifically implicates an element of a known offense. 
This isn't the way the intelligence community operates. The way the intelligence community operates is they gather all the information they're lawfully allowed to gather, they throw it in a big pot, they stir it up, they figure out what it says and what they can do with it, and they act on that. And when they have a good outcome as a result of that, it's very difficult a lot of the time to figure out what role any given carrot in that soup played in the outcome. So I think part of, part of the answer is it's not that important to program. And part of the answer is even in really important programs, you often don't look at the specific impact that a specific piece of information has the way you do in the criminal context. Isn't, isn't this, this, is, this is pretty much the same debate that occurs in the context of enhanced interrogation, where people who don't like it say, you have to prove to me that but for uh, the, a, a particular enhanced interrogation answer that you got, you couldn't possibly have achieved the result you achieved. So it's, it's very similar. It's also very similar, uh, you know, to jump on one of my hobby horses. It's very similar to journalism, um, right? Journalists are another species of people who gather all the information they can, put it in a pot, stir it, figure out what they know, and then publish or act on that information. It's always struck me as one of the amusing things about the, the very hostile, tense relations between the intelligence community and journalists that they basically do the same thing for a living. And you say this as a defrock journalist. I, no, no. I, I, I always I, like to remind you. I, I say it as somebody who loves both communities and spends a lot of time bridging both communities, and they don't see themselves in one another. They're largely in the same business. They both are really protective of their own secrets and violate other people's secrets for a living. And they both think they have specific, unusual legal justifications and protections in the course of doing so. And they have no sense that they're actually much, much more alike than different. And this is a really good example of that. And they probably, they probably also think they're all underpaid for the value that they contribute. <laughs> and they're all, and they're both right in that regard. Did I ever tell you the story about when I went to interview somebody at the FBI and he tried to hire me? There you go. Yeah. I just want to say this is Shane. Just want to say one last thing on that point. In Mike Morell's book, he actually addresses a little bit this whole question and says that for all of the debate that centered around the 215 program, the metadata program, after the Snowden leaks, and that's where the majority of the debate was, that in his, his opinion, um, the vastly more important program was 702. And it should be the vastly more controversial program. Yeah. Is this yes. what but but we had a debate along. about this. We, yeah. had, a we had a debate. debate, but nobody had a clue because they listened to the NSA speak about, uh, you know, communications only being incidentally collected and, and you know. Well, that was before. I'm, I'm saying the debate we had when we amended the law, but yeah. I mean, and one of the, and one of the first sort of counterpoints after that law was enacted that came out, and I think it was Jim Risen actually in the New York Times, was reporting saying, huh, it turns out that NSA is collecting way more stuff than it thought it was that it's not supposed to be. Well, now we look back and we realize it was the first sign of incidental or inadvertent or whatever I word we're pointing to it, collection, where it's like, yes, that is what's going to happen, is you're going to scoop up a lot of stuff that you're not really supposed to have, and then, you know, this is why, you know, the minimization procedures that Snowden leaked are, are so important. All right. Well, if there, if, if, do we have one more question? Sure. You want to ask a question? Go yes. Ahead. There we go. And she's been waiting very patiently. Thanks. Um, I wanted to bring up the last point that was made before you opened it for questions, and that was the point that while other governments are deciding that they want more intelligence, we're running the other way. 
And I think that that distinction becomes even more interesting when you consider that private companies, regardless of how the government feels, they're deciding that privacy is a commodity. Mm-hmm. And they're doing things like saying, we're going to encrypt by default. And CSPs in Europe are saying, don't store your things in the American cloud because they're just going to give it to the government. You should store it with us. What role is the private sector going to play in this debate? And what is the government going to do about it? I, I think that's a fascinating question. Uh, uh, and indeed, you can argue that this determination uh, to bring the data in uh, inside your country, to, uh, which is advertised as a privacy measure, is really driven by the fact that the private sector encrypted the uh, link between the user and the service in a way that meant that when the French did a wiretap before Gmail went to SSL, uh, they could read the email as it went to uh, Silicon Valley or came back. Now they can't because it's encrypted. So their only hope is to force Google to store the data in France where they can serve an order on them and get it right away. Uh, So uh, the irony here is that uh, to some extent, I think the private sector is driving the balkanization uh, because they believe they're offering a product privacy that everybody wants, when in fact there's about half a government that supports it, which is the United States, and almost nobody else in the rest of the world is supportive of having their uh, in, in individual citizens have perfect security. So it's it's going to be a fascinating culture clash between a an industry that think that thinks everybody wants privacy because I want it, uh, I'm going to enable it. Uh, and a bunch of governments that are looking for a stick to beat Silicon Valley with and are going to find it, I think, with this issue. Uh, so this has been, again, uh, you know, a few months ago, Shane and I did a stand-up comedy routine down at Washington Lee Law School. And, uh, Doesn't that sound great? <laughs> there's actually a, there's a good, kind of a good we video killed. of it. We, we killed. killed. Um, I think you died. A bit of that, too. Um, you but weren't there. <laughs> one of the, you know, the, the, the basic theme that I tried to develop in, in, in that talk was that all the issues that we talk about in privacy are actually totally overrated in terms of their actual impact in, in your policy, in, in your privacy as an individual. And this, the three specific areas that I identify as really, really overrated are law, the NSA, you know, government in general, um, and the area that is dramatically undervalued and under-discussed is culture, and specifically the culture that develops in the kind of common law development of norms between you and the companies that serve you, because you're actually very unlikely ever to be the subject of an NSA inquiry but you deal with Facebook and Google every day, and the norms of what you expect of them, what they deliver to you, what they don't deliver to you, when aggregated across very large communities of people, have enormous impacts on the average expectation of what is private, what is public. And we actually, when we talk about big companies and, and privacy, we tend to talk about it in these very FTC-driven terms. You know, did such and such violate its terms of service? Is there is this an unfair trade practice, right? Was there dece- any sort of deception? And even that stuff misses this 
just day-to-day development of, uh, of, a, of a sort of iterative dialogue between consumers and companies about what they will and will not tolerate, what they demand in terms of privacy intrusion, because after all, you know, the services that get delivered to you are much better if they're mining your data for certain things. Um, and what you want in terms of privacy invasion, what you don't want in terms of privacy invasion, and what you don't mind if it's not, if it's accompanied by things you like. And that stuff is just really, really undervalued in the privacy debate. It's actually under-discussed. So I think we have established... Absolutely, that uh, a Ben is funnier after you've had a beer. <laughs> Give him another. Well, yes. Any, any drinking on our podcast more often. Yeah, we're going to have to do that. Uh, uh, we're going to move the uh, podcast to the evenings on, on Mondays. Uh, okay, any more questions? Uh, otherwise, you know, uh, we're running low on beer, so uh, we're ready to join the crowd, and you can come up here and uh, uh, deliver your remarks. Oh, we got one more. Oh, all right. One more. And that crowd is thousands of people. I think it, our it, listeners yeah. really need to understand. Can we hear? Well, why, why don't we get let hear from you for a yeah, moment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll turn it around. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Please. Thank you for being here tonight. So I have a question building on your last set of remarks. Or no, it's your penultimate. So well, this would be your ultimate. Never mind. Um around counterfactuals and why we're letting counterfactuals and fear-driven narratives drive the conversation on the Hill and elsewhere, where I work in national security policy on the human rights side of the house, and uh, the counterfactuals there don't hold sway. But on the intelligence side of the house, they really, really do. And you can say that the NSA, ISIS, Snowden, Nexus, um, kind of led to a particular narrative, but I think in large part we're, we're falling into a counterfactual world where we can't prove a negative. So A, how do we get there? And B, do you have recommendations for how we have a more rigorous conversation where we don't get stuck? I got I got nothing. I, 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 <laughs> all right. So Stuart is flummoxed. I've never seen that happen. So I'm a reporter. I need us to then, stay stuck. Then you start, and then we can all shoot at you. Okay, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll set up the straw man here. Um, look, first of all, your, your, your question assumes an answer, right? Your, your, your question assumes that the answer is that we are being governed by fear um, rather than by a reasonably something within 15 or 20 degrees of the circle uh, range of rational response to our real circumstances. And I think the, um, the evidence that some things that we have done fall into that category is pretty good. Um, and the evidence that some things that we have done and continue to do are sort of outside the realm of rational is also pretty good. But people don't agree about which belongs in which category. And I think the only thing that causes that consensus to develop over time is time. And that, you know, we get warned of the terrible things that are going to happen. Um, buildings are going to be falling down all over the United States, and they're not. And that causes a debate. Is that because of all these things we've done, or is that because we overrated the enemy to begin with, or some combination of the two? And I think over time, you develop a different set of instincts than you have in real time about what's fear-mongering and what's fear-driven hypothetical 
and what's uh, a, a rational assessment of your security circumstances. And I don't, I just don't think there's any substitute for that. Boy, I, I wish that I believed that that would happen, um, but I don't. Um, well, you can, you, you, you can bring like little bits of liquid onto planes now. <laughs> right. <laughs> Despite it's so, right. That's so much more <laughs> rational. Look, as a society, um, partly because of our civic culture, partly because we're a democracy, we're risk averse. Um, our, our history is one of relative invulnerability. We hate being vulnerable. That's just part of who we are. So that's, that's one driver of this risk aversion. Okay. A second driver is bureaucracy. Um, all of these intelligence and security agencies and every individual who works in them lives in dread of the day that they fail to prevent an attack. Uh, and if you want any evidence for that, look at, you know, look at the impact um, every time we have had an attack. Um, and legislators, of course, are famously risk-averse on national security. So I think you have a lot of things pushing in that direction. And, I, you know, yes, more public debate, more disclosure, more less learning from experience might help to push back a little bit against that, Ben, but I just... I don't think it's going to push back that much. I mean, I, I would just cite as an example, a counterexample, the debate we're now having over 215. And, you know, you know, 13 years ago, um, President Bush said to Mike Hayden, what more can you do? And Mike Hayden said, nothing consistent with my current legal authorities. And the political system gave him more legal authorities. And now the political system and the legal system and the... Uh, the default action of Congress is zero, and that will lead to a curtailing of that principal but, new legal authority. But you started out the podcast tonight saying that you predicted this would galvanize those who would push forward new authority um, I, or so, restatement so, of this so authority. Look, I, I think that the world with a version of 215 is a not less civil liberties friendly place and a marginally safer place than a world with no version of 215. And so I think when we have that conversation, the result will be, and this will be, you know, a, a, a valuable spur, a catalyst for that renewed conversation. But I think when we have that conversation, the result will, should probably not be no version of 215 being available. And I think that's probably likely to be the outcome, though I don't know. Um, the point is, we're having the conversation now about how much to dial it back. We're not having the conversation about how much to dial it forward. And that's a function of time and changed risk assessment over time. Now, if you're Stuart, you say that how, how easily we forget the, forget the lessons of 9-11, and that's a terrible thing. And if you're uh, uh, Julian Sanchez, you say how wonderful that we've managed, I'm sorry to put words in your mouth, Julian, um, how wonderful it is that we've finally managed to put the fear-driven narratives a little bit behind us and have a more rational conversation. But I think one thing, we, we, one thing we're certainly not doing is an endless one-way ratchet in, in, the, in the direction of, of fear-driven narratives. We're, we're having the sober conversation, and the difference between now and when President Bush and Mike Hayden had that conversation is 13 years. I'm not sure the conversation is sober at this point. I would hope not. You know, it's 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 astounding to me that that's how long it's taken for the fear-driven narrative to recede enough. And you know, I don't want to be too glum about this, but 
but I have the feeling that we're in this little oasis of calm right now. And when the next big terrorist spectacular event occurs, and obviously what happened in Texas is not enough because the narrative hasn't changed at all. But when the next big thing happens, and it will happen, it's going to be remarkable how quickly the pendulum just swings right back the other way. But maybe that I mean, means Stewart's right. Well, just, you know, I, 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 what, I, what, I, what I can't put out of my <laughs> well, mind, you, you know, I, I, I can't even let him speak because that <laughs> was far too much of an introduction. But I can't help but think about the immediate aftermath of 9-11. The Patriot Act, it's not like this was suddenly cooked up, like the provisions were suddenly cooked up in a matter of days or weeks. Those were all things that you had that, been asking for five years earlier. That, that the, well, let's just say the Clinton administration had been had been asking for from the Justice Department, the FBI, the NSA, and were on the shelf right. and could get no traction. 9-11 happened. All of a sudden, what was it, six weeks later, they're all enacted into law with no debate. And, you know, and that's a problem when that happens. And we're having the debate now, but all the things that are put on, that are rejected now, they're all going to be sitting there on the shelf for when the next spectacular event happens, and then they'll all be rolled out very quickly. So let's have the debate now. On that cheerful note. All right. <laughs> I, the, 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 we, I'm now going to pronounce the end of sober debate. Thank you all. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Thank you.